say that on mic. No, I don't know. Well, maybe we'll cover it eventually. Stranger Things, you think? What? I don't know. Do you want to cover TV shows on sure, this? Sure, totally. Welcome to Frame Rate, the hey. show where we rate a sequence of frames. I'm Abe. Okay. Am I obliged to say my name now? No. Oh, good. I'm sorry that I assumed uh, that. The moment just came to me. Great. He's Abe. <laughs> uh, all right, ramblers. Let's get rambling. Oh, Which like is that. right? Yeah. It's a line from Our Dogs. <coughs> Our Dogs Go to Heaven. Reservoir Dogs. 1992. Tarantino's first big splash. I'm Abe. Splash of blood. Yeah, very splashy. Um, made on an extremely small budget, right? One point two. That at all? One point two million. That's not that small. Yeah. <laughs> Do you know how he amassed that? No. All right. Well, well done. Because it's probably my f- ooh. Inglorious Bastards is also excellent, but Reservoir Dogs remains one of the crown jewels, I think, of Tarantino's empire. Uh, and it was his first film, so let's get into why it's so great. Woo! And then also bad stuff about it. I don't want to spoil the rating too early, but I like it. <laughs> yeah, I, I think it's actually his best film, personally. Okay. Uh, but I'm, full disclosure, I'm not a big Tarantino guy. Uh, the reasons that I like movies are not Tarantino reasons. I think he does great stuff. I think he's a very good director. I just, you know, like if jump to Pulp Fiction... I think that you should have just cut out the Royale with cheese entirely. Oh, I see. You don't like, see, I realized uh, this time watching it, I was like, oh, it's just dramatic Seinfeld. It's the Larry <laughs> David ethos of let's talk about nothing. Right. But Which what if instead effective. of it being funny, it was like murderers talking about right. nothing. <laughs> and that, that's, it's a cool thing, but it's, it's just, just a new thing to do. We hadn't seen it before. Yeah, I guess. I think that that's a cool, cool thing to put in a movie. <laughs> sure. I don't think it's a thing that you rest your laurels on, you know, like the one that gets me is, um, and I know his excuse, like grindhouse was two movies, right? Uh, death proof and planet terror yeah. and planet terror. I thought was awesome. He only did one of them though. Right. Rodriguez Planetary was Rodriguez. Did, yeah. And Death Proof was Tarantino's and he said he intentionally structured it and paced it poorly because he wanted it to feel exactly like those movies and those movies are not made well. They're made no. badly. And I don't think that's a good enough excuse because my God, like the scene, that diner scene where the girls are all going to get killed, talk about nothing for 40 minutes for no reason and then all die. So you're like, <laughs> why did I even watch that? fucking drags on like a motherfucker yeah this one's only it's the opening sequence it's only four minutes it's a perfect little taste of like hey here's an interesting scene you've never seen mafia guy type guys talking about madonna pop music you you learn that like uh harvey Keitel is all business you know right tim roth is mr orange is quiet you know you learn things about each yeah. Them. So well, it's effective yeah. storytelling, but like it doesn't overstay its welcome. And I think right. that that's kind of true about like, for example, someone told me that like every Harry Potter book is like a hundred after like the third one is like a hundred pages longer than the, than the previous one. one yeah. Because like when you have the golden word, no one edits you. Yeah. And so that's why he, he embellished a bit. So it's this one's leaner. Right. It's very lean. Um, and it, yeah, in that opening scene, there's even more, uh, Mr. Pink refuses to tip 
And of course, right. he's destined to keep the money. Right. He's and when Tierney Joe, right. the old mob boss who set the job up, comes back and says, "Who didn't tip?" Mister Orange immediately rats on Mister Pink. Right. He goes, "Mister Pink didn't. Mister Pink's the one who didn't pay." As the cop. And yeah. of course, he'll turn out to be the, the rat. And it's very much like a things fall apart story. It's just. They're going to do this job. They're going to steal the diamonds. It's going to be easy. It's not everyone dies. It's simple plan. It's before the devil knows you're dead. Devil knows you're dead was literally diamonds also. Yeah. <laughs> uh, but yeah, but it's just really well done. And it showed off one or two maneuvers that were truly innovative. I will agree with you that Tarantino's the main things he brings to the dialogue are what if we recaptured the magic of some of our favorite sequences and shots, which I think has now ruined a lot of movies. Right. 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 Um, and then like you said, talking about nothing when you shouldn't, which is cool sometimes and then becomes boring if it's overindulged. In. That's all. Yeah. And then like foot fetish in movies. He's got foot fetish. Yeah. He loves the feet and an intense love that I can no longer unsee or defend of being racist all the time. I think Tarantino's biggest that's true. I think his biggest main, like the thing that he really popularized, not is yeah. one, two. I mean, one is the talking like, you know, cartoons kind of thing. Right. But I think the big thing is violence can come in from anywhere at any time is like the big thing, which is not as much in Reservoir Dogs because everyone's kind of got a gun the whole time. But there still is the feeling of like something you're not, there's no dramatic irony, so to speak. I mean, in this film there is because he jumps around in time, but like at any time someone can just get shot and it's horrifyingly violent. And I think it's great. That's, I think he does do that. But like you say, it's not like in Pulp Fiction where it happens because in the middle of a friendly chat, you accidentally blow a dude's head off in the backseat. In this, it happens because in the middle of a movie, the structure suddenly shifts ahead and now like you go from the credit sequence where it was just like cool guys planning to Tim Roth giving the best performance of a dude dying ever yeah. in the backseat of a car. And you're like, well, how did he get shot? Why is this so horrible already? What the yeah. fuck went wrong? Yeah. 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 And I think that I, that's why I think it's his best. Oh, it's super effective in that yeah. way. And it, yeah, you're right. It does in a leaner way. All the things he'd do later, like Pulp Fiction it disjoints time, but all the time disjoints, there's only a couple of them and they're used to great effect. Whereas in Pulp Fiction, arguably a bunch of them are just like, keep weaving, jump in time. Cause we got five stories going on, move to the other one, move to the other one. Uh, Reservoir Dogs just feels totally lean and, and perfect. Um, fun story. My girlfriend, a friend of her family used to babysit Quentin Tarantino uh-huh. when he was little and he played with action figures and called them Mr. Pink, Mr. Orange, Mr. Black, and Mr. As a child. Blonde, as a child. And like worked out heist stories with them. So that's how long he was working on the idea, which uh, I think is awesome. Yeah. At least young enough to be playing with action figures, which for all we know with Quentin could have been like two weeks ago. Yeah. I doubt he was thinking <laughs> of the idea and writing pages. It was more of, oh yeah, there's a the thing that I used to do. That's funny. But it is dope. I mean, for, yeah, for a bunch of uh, dudes on a heist to be like, don't use names, use black, pink, brown, blue. Well, I mean, that's the whole uh, freshman album kind of thing, right? Like, you've been working on that. 
as a band percolating in your head so yeah. the sophomore album is really the one that says if you're a good artist if or you not. can like generate ideas quickly yeah. see that's what i don't know if it's good well that's neither here nor there but like if someone only has one amazing novel in them but it's amazing enough that's enough yeah. like i don't need yeah. them to yeah doesn't matter how long it takes uh what was that they famously just released another book by the woman who wrote to kill a mockingbird that she never wanted released because it's not as good and everyone agrees it's not as good. And I guess it just, you know, it took her a long time to get a book that good out. Yeah. Don't force people. Um, all right. So let's see. Yeah, we go from that title sequence. Oh, we should say that diner sequence is shot in this place where we shot Cracked After Hours. The original for a period. or not yeah. the original. The second one. The second location cracked after hours shot in was the Reservoir Dogs Diner. So like season two to season like five or whatever. And of course we asked if we could sit at the same table and we did. It's shot totally differently and all the interior decoration is different. So you can't tell. But it's cool to know. Is that Pat and Lorraine's? Pat and Lorraine's. That's it. Excellent food. Yeah. What Eagle Rock area? Eagle Rock, Yeah. yeah. LA. This is for a national audience. Who cares? (laughs) All right, so they went ahead. Let's see. Oh, my point. My point about him being racist is just that, uh, of course, by the time we get to Django and he's breaking records for like the most end bombs, not just by a white person, but by like any movie ever. (laughs) um, I completely forgot that even in Reservoir Dogs, which he's coming in as like, I'm just like 16 and I'm a white nerd. And (laughs) he probably wasn't 16, but, um, and you got only white dudes, you know, other than, the guy who coaches Tim Roth, who is depicted as like a cool brother man. And like he wears a Che Guevara hat in one scene and his only other scene, he has like a Jamaican headband, whatever. Um, that's not that bad just by itself. But my point is then he's coming in and these dudes drop the N word left and right. And, you know, shit on Asian people, et cetera, et cetera. And I'm sure the defense is like, how do you think fucking gangsters talk? And I guess... I've seen a bunch of awesome gangster movies where they're able to be crude and vicious and not be racist. I think like, the racist element comes from the fact that, so he's making a seventies film in the nineties, right? Even the soundtrack is all seventies music. Amazing soundtrack. Another staple of Tarantino. I think he, that's him going, uh, pulling from black exploitation films. Sure. So, as, so, like, whenever a white dude wants to be racist in a movie, he finds an excuse. Is always yeah. I'm quoting racism from right. Elsewhere, yeah. I think that's why <laughs> he thinks it's there. It doesn't make your point any less valid. Sure, sure. Um, but moving on to like all the good shit. Now that that's somewhat out of the way, the where do they go? So you cut right to Tim Roth, and that like Tim Roth really and Kaitel, I guess. But I actually don't even think Kaitel's performance blew me away. But when I first saw this, I think I was like. 11 (laughs) sure pretty young on vhs and the intense relationship between kaitel and orange and it's orange who sells it like tim ross performance in this is for a little minute there he was my favorite actor yeah he's he's really dipping into like he's in shock yes you know he's 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 his the just his voice the the timbre of his voice is amazing squealing yeah i wrote what was my note uh he's dying in the back seat in the form of kermit the frog <laughs> yeah. yeah he's like i'm gonna die 
I'm gonna die. Please, Miss Peggy. Well, it's uh, Chris, it's Christopher Lloyd and uh, Who Framed Roger Rabbit. <laughs> 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 oh, the <laughs> dip. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, but what I noticed this time on rewatching is how much good work is done in the script with showing the intimate relationship they develop. They are immediately doing shit that you that is totally subversively cool that you would never see criminals in a movie do. Like the dudes in Goodfellas, even when you're shot comforting the dude, you would never do the shit Harvey Keitel does. does. He cradles this guy in his arms and like co- uh, combs his hair and like strokes the side of his face. And Mr. Orange goes, I'm just scared, man. Can you just hold me? And he goes, sure, sure, of course, of course. Yeah. And like cradles him like a baby. And it's such a simple film that I'm worried this will be a short episode because that's like the mousetrap of the movie to me is just, you know, Mr. Orange is the rat. He gets shot. Mr. White is genuinely a good guy, so he loves this kid. And at the end, they've developed such an intimate relationship that Mr. Orange feels comfortable and, in fact, obliged because he doesn't want to lie to him anymore to tell him he's a cop. Mr. White is therefore obliged to shoot him in the head because, as I think is denoted by the name Mr. White, he is the white knight of the criminal world, meaning, yes, he doesn't follow He's the laws you follow, yeah. but he religiously follows the laws of the honor of thieves. Yeah. So if you're a rat, it doesn't matter how truly meaningful this day we shared together is. I now have to shoot you in the head. Right. Yeah. <laughs> and I mean, that's it. That that's the reason why it's from it's like zero to sixty is that you there's the off screen they got set up, so the police are on the advantage. Obviously, he's been shot and, you know, like they're on the run. So, like, that's the thief's code is like, I will hold you. I'll be your best guy and I'll be there until you die because we went through this horrible crisis and the enemy, the police, they're the ones who did this. So it's us versus them. Yeah. And not only that, but like, I'm willing to take you to a hospital, which is a bending of thieves rules. And like he pursues that agenda a bit before Mr. Pink talks him out of it. Yeah. Uh, In addition to the fact that no one knows each other's names, like that's one of the setups. Except Kaitel. Except Kaitel told Mr. Orange's name is Larry. But until later at the beginning, it's like there's this anonymous thief coalition. Right. And the reason why they all, I think Kaitel is saving him in that fashion is that it could be any one of us. Like I could be Tim Roth on any given, you know, so he never would be, or he would never be a rat, which is what's well, not a rat, but I mean shot and bleeding right. out in the back of a car, which is why I think they bring Mr. Blonde in as the counterpoint, the role that ruined Michael Manson forever. <laughs> like Jesus, he's, he's so good and could never top that and never has topped that. And the only other good roles he gets are echoes of Mr. Blonde. And I don't like, I don't know how you're supposed to get out of a hole like Mr. Blonde because he's incredible. Yeah, he's just absolute psychopath. Absolute psychopath, which is funny because that makes him beyond reproach. Like they know he's not the rat because he would fucking uh, cut his mom's head off before he turned into the cops because he doesn't give a fuck he and he would, hates cops he, and he's loyal yeah, to Joe Yeah, and he'll do fucking anything. Like, you know, he'll turn you inside out before he'll, but like, 
but he'll do anything except betray the thieves coalition because he's a psychopath and he knows he has no home anywhere else. So of course spawned, I think the most famous scene sequence at least. And also interestingly gives us the trunk shot, which becomes a Tarantino staple and the only cop who we know, like who we see their face. You know what I mean? Like you're talking about how many cops they kill, but we don't care that they kill the cops. The cops are literally the first cop to get killed gives us a Wilhelm yeah. scream. Yeah. The, and I think that was to distance you from the cops. Um, but then you get the cop in the torture sequence. And they cut off his, he cuts off his ear with the straight razor. Gonna burn him alive. Mr. Orange shoots him at the last second, which I completely forgot. And it blew me away just as much as it did the first time. That's how tense you are about the cop's plight. That when Mr. Orange saves him, you're like, I forgot he saved him. That's amazing. (laughs) One of my favorite things about that is, at least for me, your first thought is not that Mr. Orange is an undercover police officer, but rather he shoots him because blonde, you got to die. Blonde. Like he's just a decent going, human being. Yeah. yeah he, there, someone should have shot you. If it wasn't him, it would be Kaitel. You know, like it, it doesn't enter the equation that here's a cop saving a cop, even though that's what's yeah. happening. It doesn't feel that way because it's just, here's a human like, idea of cop or robber is being thrown out the window with this horrible torture right i think it's more like uh it's almost like jean paul sartre like or uh the twilight's on five characters in search of an exit it's like let's make anonymous people represent types of people and put them in the situation and mr white is like uh lawful evil (laughs) you know what i mean and there's uh orange is lawful good or maybe neutral good because he's willing to tell the truth at the end i don't know um blonde's chaotic evil um and then pink we haven't even talked about buscemi mr pink yeah who's the smart one like i think i'm abandoning the dnd phraseology i think he just represents like what about a logic machine who always does the thing that you should reasonably to do? survive yes yeah he's he's just the all forever the i mean he's he'll be a coward if it keeps him alive you know like yeah but he's brave when he needs to be and he's instantly like I had the wherewithal to grab the diamonds. You realize we were set up, right? And Harvey Cottell's like, man, there's so much shit going on. I hadn't even thought about it. Well, that's what happened. So let's now figure out who the rat is. Should we even stay here? Cops probably know this location. He's relentlessly just like, let's just solve the problem, right? We just want diamonds. Isn't that (laughs) what we're doing? Yeah. Wasn't the point of his diamonds? (laughs) Yeah. And I love that. I also love the totally half-assed attempt to have like cool color coding in frame. Yeah, when they're yeah. in the bathroom and people always point it out online like Tarantino's a genius and I'm like there's no payoff he did that once in that one frame and never again in the movie right. when um, pink and white are in the bathroom arguing about orange in a whole fully white room with nothing else there are conspicuously a bunch of bottles on the shelf some pink and some white with an orange one in the middle because they're fighting over orange. Oh, yeah. It's like, the, I thought it was so cool when I was a kid. Now I think it's like super hackneyed color coding yeah. shit. You see, if you notice, they're all, their first name is old Mr. And uh, <laughs> yeah. they're all in suits. And like they, all have, they all have wieners. I think it's the Mr. There's something with the wieners and the Mr. Yeah. <laughs> and if you notice, Mr. Brown, played by Tarantino, is an ass face. Yeah, he's shit. He's, he's got performance shit is shit on his face. <laughs> Yeah. Um, Brilliant! It's one of his better performances. As Tarantino, you said, I think. 
Yeah, it's short. It's in, short. That's why it's good. In every parameter, the reason you and I like this movie the best is Tarantino is someone who has a big bat to swing, to borrow an ad phrase, but we have liked his self-indulgence less and less and less. So yeah. this is the first movie in every dimension has all the things he has in his head that are good ideas, the most restrained. <laughs> yeah, this is as restrained as it gets for him. Uh, it would make a good play. It's so I mean, restrained. it is a play, right? It right. really is. It's like one, like there's a few locations, but like it's all about that warehouse. Everything goes down in there. Uh, in turn everything else is backstory you yeah. know like the the actual drama comes from you know who to trust uh how do we deal with this you know new development inside this room yeah and the you know eventuality of the cops coming in my friends and i in high school worked pretty seriously to launch a production a theatrical production of usual suspects and Oof. i've Right, with Verbal and Kuyan in one location, and then flashbacks on the left side of the stage, you know, coming up as they're described. Yeah. And now I realize Reservoir Dogs, a movie I was equally insanely obsessed with at the time, way a lot easier. easier to handle. Reservoir Dogs, yeah, let's yeah. do it as a play, dude. <laughs> yeah, that's a lot. I, I mean, it's been done a bunch of times, right? On stage, really? Oh, yeah, yeah. That's funny, yeah. I'm sure. And you know what's funny? Even though it's restrained, there was still stuff here and there where I was like, didn't need that. The title cards didn't need that. And not just didn't need them. Like the title cards where it goes, Mr. Orange, Mr. Mm -hmm. Brown. The amazing contrast of the cut from the title sequence to Mr. Orange in the backseat with Gutshot set me up for looking at how the sequence joinings made meaning. And they were all disjointed by there being a title sequence that's like, now forget all that. This is a different chapter. I actually don't like that maneuver. Well, that maneuver, I would wasn't that developed more by the spaghetti westerns? I mean, that sure, not the just good, the good, the bad, bad, and the, and the ugly, ugly yeah. but just the idea of you cut directly to I think it's fistful of dollars, and then a guy's just gotten shot, and he's like, ah, you know, like the the disjoining of time and like the starting with like in medias rests. But like I, completely I love that. a jarring. Yes, version. I love that. I'm saying literally it softens the jar to have it go to black first and have text. And we will figure out from context clues very quickly. Of course, this is the Mr. Blonde section. We're following him getting out of his car and going to have a meeting. You know what I mean? I didn't right, need it right. to say the words Mr. Blonde on screen. And the reason I'm being so nitpicky is because I love the contract. I love that technique so much that I don't know why you would put space in when the whole point is like to turn that corner hard. Um, yeah, and the, that's interesting. the other thing is, it's a tendency that escalated and escalated. That's now probably one of my most hated Tarantinoisms. Like in Hateful Eight, I don't know how self-indulgent he has to be to think it's okay to make and listen to me, listeners, an incredibly well-crafted homage to these types of movies. There's lots of amazing work in it, especially the set, production design, costumes, lighting, and acting. And then at the Act Three break, he goes like. Chapter four, and he and he literally Quentin Tarantino with his voice that you know is him comes on and goes like, so this is like chapter four, um, and then they all got together in the barn. The storm, well, the storm it got worse. Quentin out, like it's it's awful. It really bothered me, <laughs> and this is the beginning of that, so I hate it because it's like yeah, it's I want to nip like, it in yeah, the bud. I, I just want to get my director's commentary in there earlier. 
Yeah, he didn't want to stand in the snow to be in that. I guess he directed it, so he must have been there. Yes. But I wonder why he didn't cameo in uh, Hateful Eight. He usually cameos. Did he cameo in Django? I can't remember. I don't think he did. I only watched him in theaters. We'll talk about that when we cover it, if we cover it. I did want to bring up what I think is the most famous plot hole in it that everyone points out, and I I have historically thought, oh, yeah, that is a plot hole. In the Mexican standoff, Here's the situation. (laughs) And this is based on a reading of the script and talking with the production designers. You got Mr. Pink, so smart, under like the ramp, safe. So you got four dudes in the standoff. Joe, the mob boss, played by Mr. Tierney. Mm -hmm. He has a gun. He's pointing it at Mr. Orange because his gut tells him that he's the rat. Mr. White is pointing a gun at Joe because he loves Mr. Orange and is saying, I'll kill you if you do that because you don't have proof and I formed a bond with Mr. Orange. And then nice guy Eddie, Joe's son, who's sort of just like a fixer middle guy is there and he's pointing a gun at Mr. White as well saying, and God, Chris Penn's performance there I think is equally fucking amazing. Um, His eyes when he says, uh, yeah, yeah, I think you're the fucking rat and his eyes go like wider and this is in a movie with Buscemi so I mean it like bug eyes as wide as you thought human eyes could go and then he goes now why don't you tell me what really fucking happened <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> so good but anyway they all shoot each other right and uh, everyone dies and the question is who shot nice guy Eddie because no one's pointing a gun at nice guy Eddie um, according to the script and the production designers, it was very low budget. They couldn't afford to reshoot it. The squibs went off in the wrong sequence. So it's not like a mental plot hole. It was just like a mistake that they had to leave in. So now we can fix this movie for you. <laughs> what happened is, and it doesn't really change anything. Joe goes through with his threat, shoots Mr. Orange. So I guess Mr. Orange has another bullet in him when he dies, which I didn't know. Um, uh, Mr. White shoots Joe. Nice guy. Eddie shoots Mr. White. And Mr. White shoots nice guy Eddie as well because he just gets another shot off before he dies or before he's fatally wounded. Right. And so that's now you've drawn the bullets. It makes Cartel more of a unstoppable force. He's just like, I'll kill the whole organization for Mr. Orange. And then Mr. Orange is like, bad news, dickhead. I'm a cop. That's not an exact quote, but another accident that in this movie was um one that you mentioned earlier. Yeah. Uh title of the film came from when uh Tarantino was working in video archives, which I believe was the name for a video rental place. Yeah. And a customer came in and uh requested a French film called what is it? Uh something about infants or elephants. <laughs> L'enfance, 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 I don't know it ends La, with au revoir, au revoir which is the one part I do know. It means goodbye. Yeah, yeah. goodbye. <laughs> au revoir, infants or infant. But he mispronounced it as Reservoir Dogs. <laughs> Somehow. <laughs> so no, the patron, I thought the patron. The patron did, yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And so like, Tarantino what? was like. You, did you say Reservoir mm, Dogs? Yeah, good name. I guess. <laughs> which is funny just because that's how like... <laughs> that's just how like bands think of their names that's got to be how vanilla sky was named yeah. probably yeah velvet underground yeah that's our name that's like he was like uh yeah 
Can you button that uh, button down? Did you say Velvet Underground? <laughs> yeah. It's fucking what a great. Name. Yeah. It's like Underground, but it's velvety. Uh, <laughs> and you do see, like, I see his deafness with dialogue. That's already here. Like, he has that Joss Whedon touch. He does have just lines that Resonate, are said yeah. in a new... Yeah, and even though it's something that's been said a thousand times, he takes the effort of when the mob guy is going to kill the other mob guy, he doesn't just say, like, I'll fucking do it, man. I'm... I'll do it. Yeah, Harvey yeah, Keitel yeah, yeah. says, listen to me, Joe, you shoot that man, you die next. You shoot that man, you die next. And just the fact that it's a new phrasing makes it so much more impactful and raw right, and real feeling right, right. and not stock. And even though all the shit that happens is stock, <laughs> I think that skill for dialogue gets him really far. Yeah. It's like saying, cause like, what are they, they, someone didn't like the most overused statements, like, I have a bad feeling about this. Right. The most said line. But if in you all were movies. to rewrite that and say the same thing, like eh, it some could be shit's going line. down. Yeah. Like, it could be great. Yeah. It could be great. But other lines I noticed, I was like, okay, that's good. Piss on this fucking turd. <laughs> <laughs> that's still my favorite line. Also, uh, yeah, everyone knows you're going to dark bark all day, little doggy. You're going to bite when Mr. Blonde's just nonchalantly sucking on a soda. Uh, arguing mis- with Mr. White. But my favorite line for that scene, Madsen line, is right after they're like ready to kill each other and Mr. Pink talks them down. And Mr. Blonde in monotone says, wow, that was exciting. My heart's beating so fast I'm like about to have a heart attack here. <laughs> like that it's, tells you everything. It's, and it's scary because it's, it's scary how he says it. It's yeah. scary because it's like, you don't, do you not understand? I mean, like, are you making a joke? We don't know <laughs> Yeah, because yeah. you are just, I cannot get a reading on this guy. Yeah. Yeah. Also, uh, uh, what's the, Oh, Mr. White's company, Mr. Orange. And he goes, we don't got to take you to a hospital. We'll get you someplace. Where? A place. We got places all over the place. <laughs> <laughs> I love that. Great lines. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, he's definitely got an act for the dialogue lines, of those right. guys. Like he, he always chooses like these hardened criminals and yeah. he has a way to make them, keep them awesome yet make them more human than, because we always have like the, he's kind of got that John McClane-ness. Uh-huh. Like Shane Black does it really well too. Yep, him too. Yeah. You know, they're both like, this guy feels inherently human. Like he makes mistakes. He's maybe not a great talker. He doesn't yes. have the vocabulary, but he doesn't need to. And he's, he's unapologetic about it because his, because his ego is off the fucking charts, which <laughs> yeah. is true of Tarantino as well. I think you need to have that ego to just, you know, like we got places all over the fucking place you send that same line and you're like more of a meeker person. Everyone's going to be like, yeah, you could probably rewrite that and make that better. But yeah. set in his they're kind like, of confidence. No, it's perfectly vernacular. Yeah. yeah. It's <laughs> like, it feels right. It feels so right. And it does. It does. Uh, I know a lot of people super love Kaitel. Do you love Kaitel? Like, do you think he's a legendary actor? I think he's a legend. Yeah. I feel like his face is perfect and his acting's fine and like his face takes him far. I mean, that's part of being an actor. I guess yeah. just your face but and no, voice. But no, I mean, I see instrument. what you're saying. He's played roles where he was on not really great. I'm, let me try to think of a few. Sure. But he's also just, here's the thing is I don't think, there's a lot of roles. Here's what I think of makes it like a truly great or legendary actor. Because there's legendary actors who are like, you can put them anywhere and they're going to fucking nail it. Like a, I don't know, like a Daniel Day-Lewis or like an Alan Rickman or someone oh. where you're just like, 
you play this niche and just but your range is so sure. huge that like a like a spacey or like a, a spacey. like a Hoffman or a, or a George Takei. It's oh wait, that one was George. <laughs> Did uh, you hear? He got accusations. Yeah, and didn't someone say the guy it was, was a single accusation shit? and he's violently denying it? And uh, there's some sort of Russian spam bot. Angle. I don't even know anymore. I'm not coming down on his side, but yeah. But I mean, like he's so good in like Scorsese stuff, right? Like he um, who Takei? Oh my yes. <laughs> oh my. No, like Taxi Driver, Last Temptation right. of Christ. Uh, like, there's just so many things that he's done. He also does a bunch of shit for Wes Anderson. He was in Moonrise Kingdom, playing kind of like himself. And that's what I mean when I, like, when you're legendary enough, like Bill Murray, where you're like, just do a Bill Murray. Or like, right. what do you want me to do? Well, Jack Nicholson, just be Jack Nicholson for this role. And he goes, all right, it's baby. Mean, it means that you so you so evoked Jack's in your back. Jack's back. <laughs> you so evoked something grand in a previous performances, even if you were typecaster. You're now the avatar of that. You're now society. the avatar of that. Yeah, so yeah. when I say Kaitel is legendary, I think that. He's sure, so good totally. at being that. Um, in the same way that I think like Sigourney Weaver is legendary. Yeah. You know, she may have a wider range than Kaitel. But she also has a different face than Kaitel. Kaitel has that hardened criminal vibe. Yeah. So, and he used it to I know effect. she's obviously Wally. She's the computer voice. I just like played a video game where she was the I thought she was the, too. she isn't Wally. She's the ship. That's what I mean. She's the ship's voice. Yeah. yeah in Wally. An alien. Yeah. No, she's the human in Alien. I thought she was also the voice too. Sigourney Weaver? Yeah. Is Ripley. I know she's Ripley. You can't be on this podcast if you no, don't know No, I that. know she's Ripley. Oh, I okay. thought she was also the... Like an Alien 4 or 5 or something? I might not. Yeah, I, mean, I could be wrong the... about that. The point is, point is... Yeah. And, well, I played a game or saw a show where she was, again, the computer voice. It's funny to me that she's become an avatar of, like, you did sci-fi, do our sci-fi as an Easter egg. Like, the people will want to hear Sigourney. Yeah. Being Galaxy a computer Quest? voice. I don't know. Now, now she was human in that as well. She, she, I know. I'm saying <laughs> right. also as a Sure. I can't remember. I don't know enough. Uh, I do want to talk about what we mentioned briefly, which is his, his Zach Braffness. <laughs> Zach Braffness? I think the best thing Zach Braff has going for his movies is the soundtracks. He is good at making oh, mixtapes. Okay. Yes. <laughs> as is Tarantino. So by that, oh, I yeah. mean the God, yeah. great decision to tie the movie together with this super sounds of the seventies weekend that's happening on the radio station. They all listen to with comedian, amazing, famously deadpan comedian, Stephen Wright, the Mitch Hedberg of a bygone era fucking killing it. I think stealing the movie reading traditional dialogue that like a shock jock would read. Right. But it is Stephen Wright voice. Like you got to come down this Sunday. It's going to be spectacular, spectacular. Anyway, here's the greatest yeah. song you've ever heard in your life. Yeah, <laughs> the least enthusiastic DJ of all time. Yeah, he's like that was Bohemoth. Yeah, which I'm pretty sure there was never anyone who was like, "That's the voice of the station." Right. That's what's funny is because it's the one thing where it's not trying to capture the '70s because even to this day, Stephen Wright would not be a DJ. Right. It's, it's like a weird fantasy element that works so well. That's what I wanted to get to coming back around to just Tarantino as a director. That's why even now there's so, that's why we have the word like Tarantinoisms. 
uh, it's his style. He has an approach to style, just like Wes Anderson. Like these are both directors that I'm not a huge fan of, just because I think style is fashion, and I'm not good at fashion. So it's just not. I'm not saying it's bad. I'm just I'm not good at it. But um, like Wes Anderson, it's like floral print, print fucking wallpaper, with. With I would argue he's doing both. He, like the good Wes Anderson stuff, movies, yeah. scripts are also holds also, up just as scripts, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. even I if mean, they didn't look like that. Yeah. Royal Tenenbaums has an amazing that's thought. That's the one. That's the saving grace of it. Yes, Anderson, there's yeah. a lo- amazing thought processes about what makes a dysfunctional family. Right. There's a lot of things going on. I'm not trying to be reductive. But he wears his style. That's on all his it sleeve. is: his floral yeah. print. But he is famous for his framing, right. his center punch, and like Michael Bay saying. Jumping back to Tarantino, Tarantino is famous for like, like flights of random violence but also the soundtrack you know like he so is he's um what's the word he's anachronistic oh my god that was a different (laughs) podcast uh he he's so anachronistic with his approach on like i'm going to take something that feels true to this era is totally kind of like what we did with like vietnam and like classic rock it's like so now anytime you have uh, Vietnam war style American helicopter you're gonna play Clarence Clearwater revival you know, like, yeah exactly it's just a thing we do and and Tarantino evokes from the viewers so many of those because he's so good at eyeing those that he is allowed to do stuff like the Stephen Wright like well this isn't true at all I just kind of want to do it why because it's like something we haven't seen before well that's yeah. why he's Tarantino I, we've sorry. not seen it but yeah that happened so much i love that there's even a simpsons thing where ken brockman goes like uh and that happened in the 60s and now if you're unfamiliar with the 60s our stock montage there must be some kind of way out of here <laughs> with like helicopters swooping in and then hippies hugging yeah exactly, so good. exactly. Uh, Whoa, yeah. God, yo. <laughs> But yeah, it uh, and I realize now that's a very, very restrained version of you're right of the flights of fancy he will take that I do. Actually, I'll eat some of my words. I think Inglorious Bastards is his other good movie. Mm-hmm. And I think it's good not only because the individual scene work and the work of fucking what's his name? Christoph Waltz just destroyed me in that movie. Well, you put Inglorious above Pulp Fiction. Yeah. Interesting for another episode my friend yeah no no that'll be fun i just want to um but i do personally because pulp fiction i think just does exaggerated versions of what reservoir dogs already did uh Uh, in the same way that i put evil dead one above evil dead two because i value innovation over nailing the production sometimes um but the inglorious bastards is the final iteration of this flight of fancy thing where you're like kill bill what if everything was realistic but not there was also like a superhero aspect randomly um inglorious bastards as we all know famously i think and it really got me and i think it's really important and it's a true structural innovation what if we told a grippingly sweepingly expensive realistic world war ii movie where they kill hitler at the end and we don't care that that's not what really happened that to my knowledge that alternate hit true alternate history especially alternate history where it's almost a trick or a twist because it was not alternate history until suddenly it was when you see hitler's face getting shot yeah. a million times we had like, not seen a well i guess that happened fictionalized historical not in a big budget movie in a certainly. Bit of and of a such a big thing like hitler you know like sci-fi authors harry turtle dove is a famous author who's for years of course 
like people have had the idea what if the south won the civil war how would stuff right. be different but that's already a fantasy like yeah. setup you know but like man, man and iron what is the one man and iron mask no man man and man in a high castle high castle yeah if the nazis won um but this is not that this is a film which is more along the length of a short story that stays slavishly realistic, seemingly realistic. We don't know that there was really this group of Jewish cadets who scalped Nazis, but it's you're like, that could be true, and I just didn't hear about it. It seems believable. Right, right. But then when they shoot Hitler in the face, the unique feeling of, of catharsis and satisfaction I had, I do think is a true new invention that Quentin gave the film world that's so cool. And then, of course... He just beats that like a dead horse. Like yeah. uh, Django is, and I'm not against having this exist, but Django is just the same catharsis for, you know, what if a slave could kill all the slave owners? Right. Who cares if it didn't happen? Wouldn't it be fun and satisfying for <clears throat> once to see? Yeah. And I fucking agree. He's right there. That's a cool maneuver. And now he's doing it so many times that I'm sick of it. But uh, Inglorious was the first iteration where it was like the alternate history twist for revenge fantasy's sake and that's a good thing (laughs) no i there's definitely a lot of development there i mean like we were talking about ego before it's not a bad thing to have that type of ego like that's one of the his strongest that's one of his strengths is that he has yeah at one point he was alone in his room with his typewriter or whatever the fuck you know and he's just sitting there he's like you know what I think that they should just kill Hitler and there's no one there to be like, whoa, whoa, whoa. But like everything up to this point, it's no longer, you're suddenly making it mystical. Right. And he's just like, yeah, I am. I am. It's my fucking story. I want to do what I want. And this could easily be apocryphal, but I also heard it had something to do with a conversation he had with Eli Roth, director of Hostel and Cabin Fever, who he's friends with, who of course plays the dude that shoots Hitler. (laughs) Isn't it like the bear Jew or something? Yeah. Um, And they had a, this could be apocryphal. I just read it online on like a fun movie facts site. So don't pin me to it. But the story goes that he asked Eli Roth, like what would be the ultimate thing to do in a movie? And he meant like, what role do you want to play someday? And he said like, well, as a Jew, probably like shoot Hitler in the face. (laughs) And he was like, that's not a bad idea. (laughs) (laughs) Which if so is awesome. Yeah. Yeah. But wherever it came from, it's a great idea. (laughs) Yeah. It's uh, plagiarizing and re or and revising fictional narrative, historical narrative is like a new thing. They're doing it a lot, or at least they're, we used to just do memoirs or we used to do like, uh, they, Tom Hanks was in the, the Walt Disney one. We're just saving Mr. Ray Hanks. Kroc <laughs> in the founder came out last yep. year. That was actually surprisingly good. I recommend and those, the founder. Those feel like memoirs or those feel like bi- biopics, biopics. Did you see the founder? Yes, I did. Okay. I felt like it felt like a biopic, but it didn't fall into the trap that they all fall into, which makes me find them boring. It didn't, it wasn't just an unstructured tour of things from his life that were interesting. It had an agenda and a point and it was propagandistic. And I mean that in a good way. And it elegantly told the point in an arc. Yeah. I liked that about it. Yeah. But there's recently like, it's a new trend of, um, uh, TV because I think you need a lot of time to do both the thing that like sets it up in the audience's viewpoint that, oh, it's just a normal tale, but then also show the stuff that's different. So you're telling two stories a little bit. We need familiarity now. And course, so that's yeah. why I think it's a good fit for TV. But there was um, 
AMC had uh, Halt and Catch Fire, which if you guys you like don't know about it, it's a good show. And it's it's basically like, so you know when computers were starting, you had IBM and you had Apple. Let's say there was a third one. And that's right. these guys. The, the Forrest Gump of those guys. Yeah, yeah, just a third one. And so let's just say instead of two, there's three. And obviously there's a bunch. Uh, but let's just tell the story and their story as a part of it. Yeah. And pulling from both. Um, the History Channel has the Vikings, which did the same. Although that argues because there's not a lot of written down about right. this guy. But this whole trend, but yeah. they Even totally like, just rewrote, like, this is how Vikings yep. are. And it's... <laughs> the Assassin's Creed games are like, uh, hey, you're some guy in Egypt we made up. Up, meet Cleopatra and change the course of history. We're just gonna re- we're just gonna say this guy we made up did it. You right, know? he's the reason there's a pyramid there. Which is whatever. interesting because like <laughs> predating like 2000, 1990s, 2000, uh, we dressed those up like you said as a here's well what if it was a man in the high castle? What what if it's just <laughs> a fantasy of this thing? What if it's just red? What is it called? Red type, Red Dawn. Red Dawn with Superman. Red no. Dawn's where Superman Red lands. Sun? Red Sun. Red Dawn is where Russia invades mainland America. Red Sun right. is where Superman, yeah. what if he landed in the USSR? Yeah. Yeah. yeah All yeah. that shit. We All don't need to shit. list every All example. That shit. Yeah. yeah. But the point is like the popularization of that. Of alternate it? history yeah. is huge. Yeah. Tarantino probably had a hand in that. Because he created yeah. some big swings at alternate history. Yeah. Yeah. We've, we've gotten away from Reservoir Dogs, huh? That's okay. Tarantino's a big topic, and I think we'll have a lot to talk about whenever we cover Tarantino. I did want to mention that, well, this is even more off track, except at a certain point while while creating Reservoir Dogs, Quentin Tarantino sat down and thought of what's the perfect credit song, and he chose Lime and the Coconut by Harry Nielsen. Yeah. And I know Abe and I both, Harry Nielsen's one of our favorite artists. I will say he was John Lennon's favorite artist. He was routinely, when people ask the Beatles in their heyday, who do you listen to? They'd say Harry Nielsen is the only American dude we give a shit about. And didn't he like ghostwrite on a bunch of like, not just the monkeys, but like the Beatles Tons themselves? Tons of right? huge hits, worked with the Beatles. Uh, there's an amazing documentary on Netflix called Who's Harry Nielsen? Why is everyone talking about him? Watch it. That's my point. He led an incredibly crazy, interesting life full of like drugs and insanity, but he also wrote some of the sweetest, best songs ever. And then some of the craziest, most psychedelical experimental songs. He's the American Beatles. He went through their entire progression. Like early on, he has these like dink, 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 nice songs that literally he would sell to the monkeys. And then hey, we're the monkeys. Later on, he totally like he went with the Beatles, did drugs with the Beatles and became his own. The Beatles had his whole crazy psychedelic phase. And he's fucking awesome. (laughs) One of my favorite things about it is that most people know him from like, oh, yeah, you put the lime on the coconut. And and he's like, yeah. "Yeah." And that was like his most mundane. Or the Midnight Cowboy. Everybody's talking. But like he also wrote one. Like yeah. one is the loneliest number. He also wrote fucking jump into the fire. Yeah. I'd rather be dead than wet my bed. <laughs> that was when he was getting real <laughs> <Yeah>. weird. <laughs> it's a great documentary. I'll tell one anecdote from it to get you to see it. Cause I didn't know shit about his life until I saw it. And I was like, man, fascinating. He and John Lennon used to get into a singing contests where they'd like sing so loud and hard, like soul screams that there would be blood on the microphones afterward. And people were like grossed out. Rightly so. Yeah. In the documentary, they say that there was like, you could, you could hear when Lennon's, Lennon's voice kind of changed at one point. Cause he like scarred his vocal cords. 
Yeah, from As I'm having saying it with my own kind of sickness. Drunken singing bouts with fights with Harry Nielsen. He proposed to a woman the very first time he met her. Uh, after John Lennon was killed, he never appeared again or wrote new music except for the causes of gun control. Interesting, dude. Watch it. Watch it. Um, and I think that's a fitting place to wrap up because that's the song that plays over the end credits. Uh, you got anything else you want to pull out? Um, I thought it was not, uh, no. <laughs> Redacted. Redacted. Rejected. Cool. Well, we should start doing something I always forget to do and we'll get better at this. Uh, and I'm not going to go back and fix the old episodes, but where can people find you online? <laughs> like me? Yeah, you. Yeah. Small beans. Uh, we'll have a whole spot at the end that will explain all yeah. that shit. You. Uh, you can find me, Abe, at Abe the Mighty uh, on uh, Twitter. Yep, and I'm at Swaim Corp on Twitter. That's Swaim underscore C-O-R-P. Uh, and Twitter's the best place to find us for now. Yeah. And uh, if you stay tuned, there will be more information on how to find great shows like this and more shit Small Beans is doing. Thanks for listening. Thank you for listening. I'm gonna die! <laughs> Fuck you, I'm fucking dying! I'm dying! What? <laughs> 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 This has been a Small Beans endeavor. We're a bunch of pals who make podcasts, sketches, music, web series, and movies. The Beans always have new ideas percolating, so make sure to check us out at patreon.com slash smallbeans. That's p-a-t-r-e-o-n dot com forward slash smallbeans, where you can browse all of our current and past content, see what we've got planned in the future, and learn how your support can help the Small Beans grow into huge, giant monster beans. If you enjoyed this content module, please like, rate, subscribe, or tell a friend about us. We love you.